0: Good morning, it's a pleasure to welcome you to this morning's symposium. So we're gonna be using a different format this morning, uh, which is a fact or fiction type format to go through some of these slides. So before we begin, just some housekeeping items. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Synovian, and it's jointly produced by the North American Center for CME uh, and CMEology. And I'm Jeff Strawn, uh, one of the faculty this morning, who will be talking about child and adolescent aspects of bipolar disorder and specifically bipolar depression. Uh, And I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Dr. McIntyre from Toronto, uh, who will be talking about the other end of the age span. Uh, In terms of disclosures, uh, we'll go over those momentarily, but we will be talking about a number of off-label indications, um, specifically around treatment of pediatric bipolar depression. You have in your handout uh, the agenda for this meeting. So I won't spend time going through that. And you also have copies of the learning objectives. So again, I won't spend time belaboring those. So with that said, let's move into the presentation. We're going to be talking about contemporary strategies for evidence-based treatment of bipolar depression in children and adolescents. But at the end of the presentation, we'll actually be spending some time reviewing the data related to mixed episodes in children and adolescents. In terms of my disclosures, uh, they're listed as follows. I'll try to emphasize any that are potentially directly related uh, as we move to the relevant slide. Among adults with bipolar disorder, about 30% had onset during childhood, fact or fiction. Press button one for fact, two for fiction. All right, so the majority of folks thinking that it does have its onset in adolescence for about a third of patients, and we'll actually review those data uh, in a few moments. All right, so in terms of bipolar disorder in children and adolescents, one of the things that's really important to remember is that irritability is often a hallmark symptom of not only unipolar depressive episodes, but also depressive and manic, as well as formerly known as mixed episodes in children and adolescents. And this is a specific core symptom that has been linked with specific uh, uh, poor prognosis uh, in these patients. Also, earlier onset, as one would expect, is associated with worse outcomes later in life. And finally, bipolar depression is more common than mania, particularly in the younger patients, including some of those prepubertal patients. Now, in terms of depressive episodes in the pediatric population, they're frequently missed. Now, again, this is probably something that seems intuitive to us in that often we have a number of externalizing symptoms that characterize a manic episode, whereas we see more internalizing symptoms associated with the depressive episode in many of these youngsters. Now, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time reviewing DSM criteria, But just to call your attention to the fact that irritability in the pediatric population, as you recall, is a depressive equivalent in depressive disorders such as major depressive disorder and also depression associated with bipolar disorder. Also with regard to weight loss and decreased appetite, in the pediatric population, we can have a failure to meet expected uh, growth um, milestones. Also bipolar disorder in children and adolescents is frequently misdiagnosed. And there are a number of reasons for this. One of which is that ADHD is quite frankly much more common in the pediatric population. And particularly when we're dealing with severe patients, there's severe cases of ADHD where there's often tremendous impulsivity, irritability, as well as syndromically overlapping symptoms. It makes sense why we may consider this to be um, ADHD rather than bipolar disorder. Also, bipolar disorder in the pediatric population has greater clinical severity than unipolar depression. And last, we're not gonna spend a lot of time going through the neurobiology, although certainly I would love to spend more time on this, uh, but it's generally characterized by disruptions in amygdala prefrontal circuitry. And we see this both in terms of our neuroanatomic studies, but also in terms of our functional connectivity studies. Now, moving forward to treatment for pediatric patients with bipolar disorder, a number of advances have actually been made in recent years. Now, some of these medications that you actually see on the slide were grandfathered in, although over the last two years, we've actually had some developments that largely were spurred by the Best Pharmaceuticals for Children's Act, um, passed uh, and actually implemented by the FDA. Um, So this is probably one of the very few situations where we actually have federally funded studies that have given rise to an FDA indication for a specific medication. And the hope is that this would be the case for many other medications down the road, not just psychotropic medications. In that regard, lithium uh, was uh, approved for additional indications in 2018 based on two studies, uh, which I'll review with you. Now, in terms of acute depression associated with bipolar one disorder in children and adolescents, there's a tremendous unmet need in terms of not only the evidence base, but also in terms of FDA approval. So at this point, we essentially uh, had the olanzapine phloxetine combination and lorazodone, although we'll talk about some, another treatment as well. Uh, And with regard to longer term or maintenance treatment, uh, we have essentially lithium and aripiprazole. And again, I'll show you those data uh, as we go through. Now, this talk is primarily focused on pharmacologic interventions, and we'll be talking about those specific moieties on the left-hand side of the slide. But I wanted to just underscore the importance of non-pharmacologic interventions. Not necessarily as monotherapy in patients with bipolar disorder, but certainly as adjunctive interventions. And when we look at longitudinal data, what we generally see is that those patients who are treated concurrently with psychotherapy, age 10 to 17, have much better outcomes. We also see that functional impairment is improved in many of these patients who receive adjunctive interventions, including family-focused therapy. So our next fact or fiction, in children and adolescents with bipolar disorder, antidepressant use is associated with poor tolerability and increased manic symptomatology and suicidal ideation. Fact or fiction? All right. So I think this response has actually shifted dramatically over what we would have seen had we shown this slide five or perhaps ten years ago. Um, I'm certainly very impressed with this, and we'll actually go through some of the data momentarily. All right, so manic symptomatology and suicidal ideation are significantly associated with antidepressant use in pediatric patients with bipolar disorder, and we actually see that that may even be the case in some of these youth who are at risk for developing bipolar disorder, as we'll talk about momentarily. So in terms of antidepressants for depression associated with bipolar one disorder in youth, we're gonna go through a few of these studies. The first is a retrospective small study, about 60 kids uh, done by Joe Biederman and colleagues uh, in Boston. And in this study, SSRIs uh, were certainly effective or seemingly effective for acute bipolar depression. However, there was a significantly higher likelihood of relapse into a manic episode or likelihood of exhibiting treatment-emergent manic symptomatology uh, with a relative risk of about three. Now, in terms of looking at uh, these data, uh, published more than a decade ago, so again, with DSM-IV diagnostic criteria, including bipolar disorder, NOS, what we see is that among patients who are less than 17 years of age who are treated with an antidepressant, we have significantly higher likelihood of negative reactions as well as mixed or manic symptoms uh, and new onset suicidal ideation. Now this is a study uh, which is one of the few that actually looks at youth who had a family history of bipolar disorder. So they're genetically predisposed to developing either affective disorders or specifically bipolar disorder. And in the study, we followed youth uh, for a period up to about five years. Now they couldn't have manic symptoms at baseline, Uh, I'm sorry, they couldn't have a a mood episode uh, at baseline, at least in terms of bipolar um, mood episodes, other than major depressive disorder. Um, They certainly could have anxiety disorders, primarily generalized separation and social anxiety disorders, and we treated them naturalistically. But we follow them every two to four months over time and carefully evaluated mood symptoms over each week during the five-year period. And what you see here is that most of the youth over this follow-up period exhibited some adverse event. Now, the likelihood of discontinuing antidepressant treatment as a result of an adverse event was significantly higher as you move to younger patients. So younger individuals who are at risk of developing bipolar disorder seem to have a higher likelihood of these treatment-emergent adverse events. And what you see here is our uh, quartiles represented in this uh, graph. Now, the first study um, that we're going to talk about looking at a medication for the treatment of bipolar disorder uh, in children and adolescents is actually an open label study. And this is a study looking at the children's depression rating scale score over time in children and adolescents age uh, 10 to 17 uh, who were treated with open label lithium. And what we see, not unlike most open label studies in psychiatry, is that there was improvement over time and that it was relatively well tolerated. That is, that is lamotrigine. I'm sorry, if I misspoke. So the next uh, fact or fiction question, lithium is indicated for manic and depressive episodes associated with bipolar one disorder and maintenance in children and adolescents aged seven years and older. So most people thinking this is fact, it's a little bit of a trick question, Uh, In the next slide here, all right, it is actually fiction, and we'll talk about that here momentarily. So lithium is indicated for manic episodes and maintenance in pediatric patients with um, bipolar 1 disorder who are age 7 and older. We don't have a specific indication for depression. All right. Sorry, going back. Uh, So in terms of lithium for youth with depression um, associated with bipolar 1 disorder, uh, we see in this study of about 27 kids um, that there was an improvement in children's depression rating scale score over time, uh, not dissimilar from what we just talked about in the other open-label study. Um, However, we're now going to move beyond some of these open-label studies The newest data that we have with regard to the treatment of bipolar one disorder, at least with regard to maintenance in children, actually comes from that study that I referenced earlier that was sponsored by the BPCA um, through the National Institute of Child Health and Disease. And this is a study that actually looked at youth aged seven to 17 who were experiencing a manic or mixed episode. And they received 24 weeks of lithium. This is the lithium collaborative study called by the acronym COLT. Now responders were actually randomized to either continue lithium or to be randomized to placebo for up to 28 additional weeks. And the primary outcome measure was uh, discontinuation from the study for any reason, although they also looked at relapse of affective uh, episodes, either depressive uh, or manic or mixed. And again, I I don't even know that we need to go into the statistics. I think these survival curves really tell the story uh, in terms of the discontinuation here. Uh, But this is really the study that helped to give rise uh, to that new uh, maintenance indication uh, for lithium in kids seven to 17 uh, in 2018. Now the next study we're going to talk about is a study of quetiapine in youth with depressive episodes associated with bipolar one disorder and this is a study of kids aged 12 to 18 uh, years of age, um, about 30 kids uh, and it's relatively small, probably somewhat under ta- underpowered to detect uh, the difference in efficacy uh, but there was no statistically significant uh, effect associated with treatment here. Now the next study uh, which was a little bit larger Although probably associated with a number of limitations uh, given that, in terms of number of sites and significantly higher placebo response rate. But this is a study that included children and adolescents uh, with bipolar 1 or 2 disorder. So, again, very much following what was done with the adult uh, Boulder trial. And what they looked at, uh, like uh, we've seen in many of these prior studies is the change in the children's depression rating scale score. And what was observed was that over time there was no significant difference between groups. Now the next study, uh, actually the, one of the ones that we'll talk about that's positive uh, for pediatric patients with bipolar uh, depression uh, is a study of the olanzapine fluoxetine combination. Now, in this study, what was observed was that there was relatively early separation from placebo and that uh, there was continued improvement over time. Um, However, in a moment, we'll talk about the tolerability associated with olanzapine fluoxetine combination. And as we would expect, given the olanzapine component, there was actually sequoian weight gain associated with uh, olanzapine. Um, More than half of the patients experiencing significant increases in weight, and there was also probably what would be expected in terms of the metabolic tolerability with regard to triglycerides, um, although that really um, not uh, quite uh, hitting the 5% significance threshold. Now the next study that we'll talk about is one of Lorazidone, uh, and this again, like most of the other studies that we've looked at, has looked at the change in the children's depression rating scale score over time. And what we see here is that relative to placebo, there's improvement, and it becomes statistically significant at the week two time point. What we also see is that there's continued improvement over time. The other thing that I think is important here is that while the placebo response rate is larger than we see in some studies of unipolar depression and certainly of pediatric anxiety disorders, it's not the same placebo response rate that we see in many of these other trials in pediatric patients with bipolar depression, for example, the quetiapine study that we talked about. And probably that difference in placebo response rate is really what allowed us to see a treatment placebo uh, difference in effect. Uh, and so, again, you see that this improvement continued to increase over time. Now, what I think is interesting here is the mean uh, dose of uh, which was around 30 milligrams uh, per day. Now, in terms of looking at the tolerability of lorazidone in this double-blind placebo-controlled trial, um, patients, after completing the initial portion were followed over time in the context of open-label treatment. And what we see here uh, is that uh, there was uh, maintenance of uh, that improved effect, although this does come with a number of the limitations associated with open-label trials. Now, also as part of the open-label assessment of lorazidone in the long term, uh, a number of papers have actually looked at metabolic profiles associated with this. And in this study, which I think is interesting, for a couple of reasons, they actually modeled the expected weight gain in this population based on Z-score and based on age, uh, as well as sex and height and other variables that we generally have to consider in the pediatric realm uh, that my adult colleagues generally don't have to deal with. So what was observed was that there were relatively uh, insignificant differences uh, with regard to the actual weight gain that was observed over this period and the expected modeled weight gain over this follow-up period. So you see a final uh, difference there of 6.9 kilograms and 6.7 kilograms. Now in terms of the metabolic uh, profile, uh, what was observed um, was uh, that this appeared to be relatively Uh, metabolically neutral or or certainly less uh, metabolically offensive than most other uh, medications. Um, There was perhaps uh, some signal with regard to triglycerides and again very off-label we've we've done some work in Cincinnati looking at the way in which omega-3 fatty acids may mitigate uh, some of the SGA associated hypertriglyceridemia. Uh, There were no significant uh, differences with regard to hemoglobin A1C, uh, and there were no differences with regard to uh, hyperprolactinemia. Um, This issue of hyperprolactinemia is particularly important in that a number of the medications that uh, don't seem to be associated with as significant of hyperprolactinemia in adults seem to be associated with much more hyperprolactinemia in the pediatric population. We'll talk a little bit about that when we get into the mixed states later in the presentation, but that's certainly the case for lanzapine Uh, wherein we don't see as much hyperbalactinemia in adults, but we see very significant hyperbalactinemia in pediatric patients. So in conclusion, for most adults with bipolar disorder, the onset occurred during childhood. Again, I don't think based on the polling results, that was really a surprise to anyone in the room. The early onset bipolar disorder is associated with poorer long-term prognosis and an increased risk for suicide attempt Next, uh, there are relatively few controlled trials. I think you've really seen all of them at this point in the presentation um, with uh, adolescents with bipolar depression. Uh, and the negative reactions to antidepressants, regardless of whether they're SSRIs, SNRIs, uh, or atypical antidepressants, things like bupropion, uh, seem to be fairly common in pediatric patients with bipolar disorder type one, as well as those who are actually at risk for developing bipolar one disorder. Uh, And to date, uh, at least previously, uh, we had limited FDA uh, treatments for bipolar depression in the pediatric age range. Um, Lorazidone, as you've seen, um, was the first monotherapy to demonstrate efficacy uh, and tolerability for bipolar depression in youth. So with that being said, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my colleague, Dr. Roger McIntyre, who will be speaking about bipolar depression in later life beyond
1: special population. Thanks, uh, Jeff. Thank you. And thank you, Jeff, for your presentation. Good morning, everybody. Okay, just my disclosures here uh, in the private sector, also in the government sponsorship of my research and activities uh, in Toronto. Now, I'm going to speak to the topic of old age bipolar disorder and perhaps a couple of general comments just to really start. During the last decade, one of the observations that's been made in this population broadly, that is the bipolar population throughout the trajectory, beginning with the type of patients Jeff would see, people I would see a bit later in chronologic age, is that we now know that a subset of people with bipolar disorder exhibit premature aging. So if the multiple choice question said, is bipolar disorder a premature aging disease, yes or no, you'd have to circle yes. And now, is that the case for every affected person? No, but that would be the case for some people. And I wanted to bring that up first because when we talk about persons who are chronologically older in life, well, first of all, as we get older, we define it later and later But the point I'm getting at is is that there's two ways to think about old age bipolar disorder. People who declare their first episode of mania after the age of 50 or 60, and where you put the line is frankly generated more by consensus than really uh, a, a clear answer on that. But when you see someone who declares mania for the very first time over the age of 50 or 60, that is the clarion call to really, in fact, conduct a thorough neurological investigation. And if there was one takeaway message of the presentation, that is the takeaway clinical message. Because it appears as though that individuals who declare, for the very first time, a manic episode over the age of 50, they are much more likely to have neurological disease. And often it's cerebrovascular in its nature. The other part about this, which I think is relevant, is that the phenomenological presentation of old age bipolar disorder overlaps extensively with persons who declare the illness in younger years. And as you all know, 70% of people who have bipolar disorder declare the illness prior to the age of 24. So it typically is an earlier age at onset disorder. The phenomenology overlaps extensively But those, in fact, who have a really, really sharp eye would notice that the adult who's in the older age range with bipolar disorder on average tends to have more confusional states, more cognitive impairment, and also has more irritability and mixed. Now, the last part, irritability and mixed, has almost become an orthodoxy in this field that the older adult with bipolar tends to be more mixed And I'm not saying that's untrue, but what I would say is, is I think in 2019, if we conducted similar studies, I'm not so sure that the prevalence is gonna be that much different anymore. Because what we've all observed, or many of us have observed, is that in people in their 20s and 30s, we're seeing a significant increase in the presentation of mixed. In fact, I uh, wrote a paper recently, where have all the euphoric bipolar patients gone? Uh, We're seeing more and more of these mixed patients. So you can see some facts. I was told that everyone at US site Congress can read, so I'm not gonna read the slide. Um, But the point is, is that what percentage of people declare bipolarity after the age of 50? It's variably reported, but if you remember 10%, you're probably gonna get full marks on that question on the exam. So 10% of people declare first. So just as a, a statistic. Now you can see some of the mentions here, Um, with respect to how it could be different. I did speak to this mixed phenomenology, but again, mixed phenomenology is seemingly more common in younger adults who have bipolar disorder, and we're not entirely clear whether the rate of mixed features is really that much higher anymore in older people. With respect to dementia, you know that the adult who has bipolarity declared earlier in life, in their 20s and 30s, is at a higher risk of incident dementia later on. Not only Alzheimer's, but other types of dementia. And the variable that associates with that risk, the hazard, is the number of episodes. So the more episodes of bipolar you have, the more likely that individual will present in a demented state. And I've been in this for a little while now, this this area, and I've been quite struck now over the years, tracking many patients since my residency years, of adults in their 50s who are now presenting with Alzheimer's disease and so on. So very, very concerning. Now on the issue of death, you know that the most common cause of premature mortality in the entire bipolar population broadly is cardiovascular disease. And for those interested, cardiovascular disease, subclinical, is actually detectable in pediatric bipolar disorder, which is obviously very concerning. This is a core lesion, if you will, in the disease state. So with that statement that cardiovascular disease is the most common cause of premature uh, mortality broadly, it won't surprise you, it's also the most common cause in the older age group. Let's not forget suicide, however, because suicide rates remain elevated in those people who are uh, of older age. Said differently, the standardized mortality ratio, the risk of suicide in a person who is over the age of 50 with bipolar, either because they declared the illness at that time, or more commonly, they've grown older with the illness, is still elevated. So the suicide risk doesn't, in fact, reduce. Um, One part about that dementia comment, uh, we're gonna speak to this, is the role of lithium. Now, I started off by saying that the adult who has bipolar disorder in declaring for the first time in older age is really the person you and I should be vigilant for any neurological, specifically cerebrovascular, event. And that's something that uh, I have found as a clinician that has often been the case. In fact, the literature would indicate that uh, in fact, the majority of these people may have some type of cerebrovascular disease. Whether or not it is the proximate, in other words, the immediate cause of why they've declared bipolarity, is an academic question. But they certainly have higher rates of neuroimaging identified abnormalities. Now, I've tried to highlight with these red rectangles some of the rates of medical comorbidity. It's a bit of a busy slide onset less than 50 over 50 rather than try to do a contortion to read the slide perhaps in fact what i would say is and probably nobody's surprised that the rates of concurrent medical problems is staggering in this group i would say that well it's staggering across the entire age span of this disorder uh bipolar disorder with cardio obesity metabolic being the most common co-occurring conditions. By the way, that's not just by chance. We now believe that the pathogenesis of bipolar disorder broadly is overlapping with the pathogenesis of cardiovascular disease, obesity, uh, and diabetes. And on the topic of cognitive impairment, which is so pronounced, again, throughout this entire illness trajectory but in the older age uh, it now appears very clear that obesity is not simply a concurrent condition with perhaps a shared pathogenesis but obesity appears to be anti cognitive in other words obesity in the bipolar patient is associated with much lower cognitive functions when compared to the bipolar patient who is of normal weight and this has inspired a kind of a notion that we've been looking at where obesity does metastasize to the brain as a metaphor of the effectors of insulin resistance and inflammation that are hazardously affecting brain. So cognition impairment is well known in bipolar disorder. I remember not that long ago, uh, cognition did not receive that much attention in bipolar disorder. We now see it as a deficit as part of the illness. It's still an open question whether cognitive impairment is also more likely to be identified in people who are at risk. That is, they're a first-degree unaffected relative. And there's some uh, results that suggest that could be the case. But the cognitive deficits we're talking about are what I call the Fab Four. The Fab Four, not the Beatles, but the Fab Four is executive functions, attention, memory and processing speed. And depends on the study, someone might find one domain more affected than the other, but I think really it's the full group of these uh, subdomains that are affected, executive functions, memory, attention, and processing speed. And these observations of cognitive impairment are not just replicated and certainly very robust, but what's particularly relevant to you and I, whether it's old age or younger age bipolar disorder, is that the persisting cognitive impairment is what's in fact mediating PROs, patient-reported outcomes. So let's look at this question, fact or fiction. Cognitive abnormalities and bipolar depression and MDD are similar in older patients. Okay. Similar, so majority say fiction. They're, They're not similar. Let's go to the next slide if we can. Okay. Is there another question? fiction, exactly. Okay, older age major depression and bipolar depression have different neurocognitive symptoms and degenerative outcomes. Okay, so this is in fact looking at cognitive impairment, and I think to be perfectly blunt, the evidence would not allow us to say with the utmost of certainty that there's staggering differences between the two groups. But what is there tells a story that on average, the modal person who has bipolar disorder, not only in older age, but also younger age, is not only more likely to have deficits in one or more of those four cognitive domains, but the magnitude of the deficit would be greater. Moreover, if the person with bipolar disorder reports or exhibits psychosis, he or she is more likely to be cognitively impaired than the other patient with bipolar who doesn't have psychosis. So psychosis in bipolar disorder is a particularly interesting proxy of cognitive impairment. On a separate and parenthetical note, the genetic studies that have been conducted in bipolar disorder and schizophrenia during the last decade tell a story that Kreplin and many others told 100 uh, years ago that there's a genetic overlap. And for those who are interested, the bipolar one patient, has a genetic architecture that more closely approximates schizophrenia. The bipolar II patient has a genetic architecture that more closely approximates major depression. And what's interesting is that the bipolar one patient who has psychosis has cognitive impairment that more closely approximates schizophrenia. So the genetics of bipolar disorder probably are marching in some similar direction as the genetics of cognition is my message. Now, lithium was first isolated in 1817. This is an old drug. By the way, many of the medications we have in bipolar are fossils. Lithium, 1817, Prox 1882, carbamazepine, 1953. These are oldies. Now, lithium, uh, we know, has an anti-suicide effect. That's well-established and seems to be unique to that agent within the FDA-approved agents for bipolar disorder. The other part about lithium, and you've probably heard this, it does seem to forestall, maybe reduce the hazard of dementia. And this has been replicated in observational studies. There's been other work uh, that has looked at the biomarkers of dementia, that is hyperphosphorylated tau, as well as amyloid protein in adults who don't have bipolar, but have been tracked forward taking lithium with mild cognitive impairment. And the readout was that lithium has favorable influences on these biomarkers. For those who work in the lab, they've been telling us for a long time that lithium reduces the oligomerization of amyloid and reduces tau phosphorylation. So there's a molecular story that gives us the reason to believe that these observations being replicated are in fact real. So that's a very important point about this lithium along with anti-suicide properties. Now, when it comes to the guidelines in treating the adult with bipolar disorder in older age, I'm sure like me, the great majority of patients you're seeing over the age of 50 or 60 who have bipolar disorder they had the illness for many years. They've grown older with the illness rather than new onset bipolar disorder. So to be blunt, there are not many studies that have been conducted in adults who have new onset bipolar disorder over 50. And frankly, relatively few studies have included people uh, in bipolar clinical trials beyond the age of 65. Usually it's We seem to have a thing with 18 to 65 when it comes to mood disorder studies. So we have some people obviously up to 65, and some studies have actually had eligibility criteria where patients can come in at ages higher than 65, but not a whole lot. So with that as the lengthy preface, we in fact do a lot of extrapolation. A lot of extrapolation, if it's been shown to be helpful in a 35 or 45-year-old well, probably I'm going to go to that age in in someone who is 65 or 70. And that extrapolation is pragmatic, but that extrapolation would be guilty of really having a relatively thin database or evidence base to support it. But I think pragmatism is going to uh, win out. Now, there's been a number of different guidelines in the area of bipolar. By the way, I, I had no idea. We just recently submitted a review of all guidelines around the world That had been prepared, looking at depression and bipolar. I had no idea there were over 200 guidelines, and it was one of those kind of things. I said I wanted to do this project, and then once I got halfway into it, it's kind of like being swimming halfway across the ocean. I might as well just keep swimming, and so I uh, was sufficiently masochistic to do this. Anyways, lots of guidelines, but not a lot on the old age bipolar. Now, when it comes to Um, what treatments we would recommend. There's no question that the pharmacotherapy is cornerstone. I've said enough about the somewhat anemic database that's there with respect to studies delimited to people with new onset over the age of 50. That being said, in our clinic in Toronto, lithium would still remain mood stabilizer par excellence. It is the gold standard in younger people, and in older people. The challenge with lithium is not so much the kidneys, the thyroids, the laboratory monitoring, of course that's an issue. The issue is, is that the type of patient who responds best to lithium, that is the patient who has stable, episodic, bipolar disorder, often with family history, is a patient we're seeing less and less of. We're seeing much more chronic, unstable rapid cycling mixed comorbid patients and these patients respond to lithium they absolutely do but just less so or less predictably so than the stable episodic what used to be called classic bipolar disorder so you can see some statements here about psychotherapy makes good sense i would say particularly social rhythm therapy I remember when I was a fellow, I worked at a nursing home for two years in the Toronto area, and I was asked to see adults, obviously in a nursing home, older folks uh, who had bipolar disorder. They all had social rhythm problems, um, and they all were often very psychotic, actually. And these individuals clearly stand to benefit from these types of resetting of the zeitgebers, in other words, resetting of the environmental signals of what time of the day it is, and trying to reduce the risk of delirium superimposed on their bipolar disorder, as well as, in fact, to offer a uh, psychosocial intervention to benefit directly their condition. Now, I don't need to tell you that as you get older, there's changes in the metabolism, the handling of medications, the pharmacokinetics of medications. That's obviously very very well known and I think that when it comes to uh, what we have in guidelines again the guidelines can only guide you based on the evidence and frankly the evidence is not that robust for a lot of the treatments notwithstanding life goes on and you can see here these are the Canadian guidelines uh, quetiapine and lorazodone monotherapy now that is something I think is reasonable Quetiapin clearly has difficulties in some patients with sedation and somnolence, but notwithstanding, we do have some studies with quetiapin that included people who were over the age of 50, most of whom who grow older with bipolar disorder. Now, lithium and lamotrigine, I call those the two L's, they're next. Um, it does appear to be the case that the risk of rash or cutaneous syndromes in older people is less so than people who are younger, which I don't think is a significant risk for most adults anyways. And I want to put a particular plug in for lithium. And the fact that lithium might have some of these anti-dementia properties is obviously an intriguing asset. The fact that it's an anti-suicide drug is obviously relevant. And the fact that it works is also relevant. I should mention. That there's a general consensus that in people who are 60 to 80 years of age, lithium levels of around point Maybe four to point Eight seem to be okay. Over the age of 80, many of us prefer to see lithium levels uh, point Four to point Seven, and uh, I want you all to be reassured that those levels are certainly very effective. Now, antidepressants, you know the concern with antidepressants—they can lead to switch or treatment-emergent dysphoria, irritability, sleep disturbance, and so on, and that's something one has to be cautious about. I was uh, quite struck at how often, when I was at this nursing home, I was asked to see people who were delirious, when, in fact, they weren't delirium. They did not have an altered sensorium. They actually were often psychotic and often very irritable and hostile, and in some cases, in some cases, This seemed to be temporally associated with being exposed to antidepressants in some cases. Um, You can see some comments here about lithium. Obviously, with kidneys decreasing in function, one has to be cautious with lithium levels. But again, I do see lithium as a gold standard uh, for many of these people, particularly uh, people with more of a stable course. Uh, I talked about dementia. This is specifically Alzheimer's disease. I wanted to put that slide in because this is obviously very intriguing. And what we do know is that not only is Alzheimer's and other dementing disorders more common in multi-episode bipolar disorder, but the age at onset is much, much earlier. In other words, rather than see the early signs of Alzheimer's like mild cognitive impairment at age 60 or 65, we see it in many cases at 50, even 45 in some cases. So obviously extremely concerning. Um, By the way, for those interested, there's a, a framework that's been proffered to really help us understand why the bipolar patient is so prone to elevated and early age at onset dementia syndromes. One is implicating inflammation or what's called immunosenescence or inflamm aging. So the inflammatory process of bipolarity puts in motion a vicious molecular cycle that then results in uh, changes in brain structures and function critical to cognitive functions broadly. The other one, which is also in the suspect line, is insulin resistance. So Jeff works in the pediatric area. Colleagues at McLean have just recently looked at uh, first-degree relatives of people who have bipolar disorder. They seem to have insulin resistance, even though they don't even have bipolar disorder. And a good friend of mine in Toronto, Ben Goldstein, which I'm sure Jeff knows well, uh, Ben has shown significant rates of metabolic syndrome, even in the pediatric population. There's something about bipolarity that seems to result in insulin resistance, often subclinical. And insulin resistance is a significant risk for dementia syndromes. uh, You all know that, for example, diabetes is thought to account for up to 10% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease. Lamotrigine has been around a long time. This is an example of repurposing. So lamotrigine was derived from a drug well-known in malaria called pyrimethamine, And lamotrigine has open-label evidence that it can attenuate depression in the bipolar patient. We have that data here. And the doses are not too dissimilar from younger people under the age of, say, 50, and ranges of between 150 and 200. The quetiapin recommendation was based on some fairly, uh, uh, it wouldn't be called rigorous, this was post hoc analysis of some clinical trials done with this agent in people that were mostly younger in age. Notwithstanding, there was a a subgroup analysis done in those 55 to 65, the doses you're familiar with, 300 to 600. For me, the issue has been more sedation and, yes, some of the metabolic issues. Lorazodone has been looked at in people 55 years or older. Uh, Lorazodone, uh, we heard about in the pediatric population, has this evidence in older age, without the burden of the sedation, and without the burden of the weight and metabolic changes. So think about older age bipolar disorder in two ways. First, has my patient grown older with bipolar, or is my patient declaring bipolar for the first time after the age of 50? In the latter scenario, that is, in fact, the message to conduct a thorough neurological evaluation. person, perhaps has an underlying cerebrovascular uh, disease uh, process in place, and that may require its own separate uh, focus and clinical attention. It also is not without our interest that the first episode bipolar over age 50, they tend to have very low rates of family history of bipolar disorder, and that introduces the very real possibility that maybe the the biological type, the biotype of their illness is very different, and that's interesting academically, and what that means clinically is to be determined. Secondly, I do think, in fact, be cognizant of patients who are older who are presenting with psychosis, irritability, cognitive disorganization. These are more often reported in older age bipolar, but certainly not uncommon in younger age groups. And then we've walked through some of the uh, their various treatments, and I guess we all would prefer prevention, and we hope one day we'll have cures. But it does suggest, at least the data, that lithium may have some preventative effects on dementia syndromes downstream. And clearly, that's a, a huge issue for many of us in the room who track a lot of patients throughout the lifespan. And this, of course, is augmented with a very, very heavy dose of psychoeducation and where appropriate, manual-based psychotherapy. Folks, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: So we're now going to continue looking at mixed episodes associated with bipolar disorder, particularly in pediatric patients, and then we'll flip back again to the other end of the age span. So I'm going to continue what Dr. McIntyre was talking about with regard to lithium and specifically looking at mixed states associated with bipolar 1 disorder. And this is a relatively recent uh, meta-analysis published by uh, another Canadian, uh, Anne Duffy, uh, and colleagues uh, just last year. And what was observed uh, was that relative to uh, placebo, uh, there was a, a significant um, difference, although probably not, uh, is clearly apparent there. Um, however, relative to Dival Pro-X, there was actually no difference. And we'll talk a little bit about Dival Pro-X, uh later, although to adumbrate here. Dival Pro-X in the pediatric population, at least with regard to bipolar disorder, has really failed to demonstrate any significant benefit in approximately a half dozen studies, including some open-label studies that we've done at the University of Cincinnati. And It's, as you know, particularly difficult not to show an effect in an open-label study, but we were able to do so. Uh, with regard to lithium versus uh, risperidone, you see the data uh, relatively clearly there. Now the next study uh, that we're going to talk about actually looks at acenopine in pediatric mixed states. And this is a nice study for a couple of reasons, one of which is that it actually allows us to look at the impact of dose uh, relative to uh, control intervention placebo. Although one of the issues when we tend to do that and we look at multiple doses is that we increase the likelihood of randomizing to an active treatment which has the unintended effect of actually increasing our placebo response. Uh, so that's something to bear in mind when we're looking at many of these studies methodologically. That being said, what we see uh, is that in this sample where almost uh, 60% were exhibiting a mixed state, uh, that there was improvement associated with the senapine. Now when we look at eripiprazole in pediatric patients with mixed states, so age 10 to 17, this is a relatively large uh, study. um, And what we see is that there is, again, a significant improvement over time. Uh, And this is another study, like the last one that we looked at, where they actually evaluated two different doses, 10 milligrams and 30 milligrams. And what we'll actually see in this study and we'll see in some of the subsequent studies that we're going to talk about, is that there are often dose-related differences in tolerability that we see in the pediatric population that are perhaps even more pronounced Than what we see in adult patients and so what we see here uh, as I just alluded to is that the average weight gain was not significantly different uh, for the 10 milligram dose uh, but numerically there is a higher weight gain expected uh, with the higher dose and that's something that probably is more of a power issue and that if we had more patients randomized in this study we probably would have seen actual significant difference, and particularly also affected by the short follow-up period of this study. Now, the next study to talk about with regard to pediatric mixed states actually looked at uh, risperidone, and risperidone is probably one of the most studied second-generation antipsychotics in pediatric patients. Now, what you notice here is that there is uh, improvement associated with the middle dose as well as the higher dose but what's probably even more important is the fact that the tolerability changes substantially as you increase the dose without really seeing a clinical advantage in terms of symptom reduction so we see here when we're looking at extrapyramidal symptoms is that in the three to six milligram per day range Almost a quarter of the sample experienced significant extrapyramidal symptoms relative to only about 5% of patients treated uh, with the 0.5 to 2.5 milligram dose. Uh, Also, um, you see the prolactin uh, data there, uh, and again, following a very similar trend to what we see with the extrapyramidal symptoms. So in general, what we see across pediatric studies looking at second-generation antipsychotics is that, again, as I mentioned in the first portion of this presentation, the risk of hyperprolactinemia is both different relative to adults and also higher. Um, so what we see is that certainly for hyperprolactinemia and extrapyramidal symptoms. Um, all right. The next medication to talk about with regard to randomized controlled trial data in pediatric mixed states is olanzapine. And what was observed here is that there is a significant difference uh, with regard to olanzapine and placebo on the primary outcome, the change in the Young Mania rating scale. But what's also important to remember from a tolerability standpoint is that there was very significant weight gain associated with the olanzapine. And also in this sample, although not shown on this slide, there was very significant hyperprolactinemia. Um, The modal dose was around 10 milligrams, uh, plus or minus five or so uh, in this study. Uh, So a little bit lower than what we tend to see in some of the adult mania studies. All right. So our next fact or fiction question, adults are at greater risk for metabolic effects of antipsychotics compared to children and adolescents. Fact one or fiction two? So we have some things to talk about, all right. So pediatric patients are actually at greater risk uh, for many of the metabolic effects associated with antipsychotics in adults. With regard to the metabolic effects of these agents in the pediatric populations, certainly we're aware that they cause weight gain. They may be associated with dyslipidemia, increases in blood pressure, hyperglycemia, et cetera. Younger first-episode children as well as adolescents seem to be at greater risk. And what we also know is that second-generation antipsychotic-associated weight gain in this population is greatest with olanzapine followed by clauzapine. Then risperidone, followed by quetiapine, aripiprazole, and zaprazidone. Now, currently, expert consensus statements recommend switching to an antipsychotic medication with lower metabolic liability to address antipsychotic. Uh, associated weight gain. However, it is important that there are a number of other off-label interventions that have been successfully used in adults as well as in pediatric populations. And for probably about a decade now, uh, in Cincinnati and other places, we've been using metformin uh, to attenuate antipsychotic weight gain in those patients that seem to be at greatest risk or those who have demonstrated early... a weight gain associated with that. And um, at our department, we uh, have a patient-centered outcome research initiative uh, project uh, funded by PCORI uh, looking at the effect of metformin in attenuating some of this antipsychotic induced weight gain. Uh, again, that is off label. Also, behavioral and pharmacologic interventions are available to manage these adverse effects. Um, but we often see significant barriers associated with these, particularly in the adolescent population. So that's all I'm going to say, actually, about mixed features associated with bipolar depression, although I'm hopeful that we'll have a chance to talk more about that in the discussion section. I'm going to turn things over again to Dr. McIntyre to talk about mixed
1: features in adults. Hey, Jeff. Thank you. Okay, pick this question up, if we will the presence of obesity in the adults presenting with depression should be considered a probabilistic factor for bipolar disorder and mixed features. Okay, interesting. I would probably tend to agree with the fact. Next one, bring the slide over. Fact it is, very good. Next one, and I'll say a few words about that now. Um, and this seems to be the case, and I'll speak to this. Um, I had mentioned during the first presentation that an impression that has been uh, reported on around the world is that we are seeing more and more mixed presentations. And I guess we should probably, Jeff, just say a few words about what we mean by mixed, because mixed has been, if you will, it's been variably defined over the last, well, frankly, 100 years, 200 years. But in contemporary psychiatry in the last 20 years, it's it's seen different iterations. And in 2013, the DSM-5 took out the entity mixed states, which was the co-occurrence of mania and depression, and supplanted that with so-called mixed features specifier. And simply put, if a patient has mania or hypomania, or they have depression and they have so-called opposite polarity symptoms, three or more of them, that would fulfill the criteria. Now, there are some specifics as to which symptoms are allowed and not allowed, and that's fine and that's certainly good um, DSM-5-based practice. The reality, however, is, is that most people who have mixed in the adult population present with A lot of anxiety and agitation, which don't count, actually, towards the the definition. And we have been looking at this for many years. And as a way to have a cheat sheet in your office when you're busy, one of the cheat sheets that I like to mention is to think about the five A's. So the person who has mixed is often very anxious. That's one of the A's. The next one is they're very agitated. The third one is they're very angry. These people have a lot of anger. And I don't mean just irritability. Anger. Real anger. Anxious, agitated anger. They also have a lot of problems with attention. Now, they come in, they're very distracted. They often ask, do I have ADHD? And so on and so on. And so they have that real attentional problem. And they also have anhedonia, absence of pleasure. So they're anxious, they're agitated, very angry problems with attention in anhedonia. They're sort of wired and tired. And this is really, really common nowadays in adults with bipolar disorder. And we're trying to understand why this is seemingly, seemingly happening more often. And there's not a simple explanation, and it would simply be a hypothesis. I don't think we've got a verdict yet. But we do, in fact, have replicated studies that indicate that the person who is bipolar, who is obese is more likely to present with mixed states or mixed features. And on this, oopsie daisy, come back one slide, guys. I thought that was my pointer. Um, On this slide, at the bottom here, what we have is DSM-5 criteria, depressive mixed. And you can see different percentages. My message is, is that people who have obesity in the adult age range are more likely to present with those five A's. And what's interesting about that is that when you look at the brain of people who have obesity, their brain is different than the adult with bipolar who's normal weight. And more specifically, the regions of the brain that are different are the regions of the brain that subserve cognitive functions, that subserve affect regulation, that subserve aspects of reward. In other words, some of the areas that we think are subserving those five A's that I enumerated. There's lots and lots of literature now to show that obesity is in fact a brain hazard, particularly as it relates to brain volume. It's true, as your waist gets bigger, your brain gets smaller, unfortunately. Someone said to me, one size doesn't matter. So when we look at actually circuits, the circuits in the brain, the functional interconnectivity of the brain begins to change. We did a study in China, in Guangzhou, where I uh, also have an appointment. These were children who were high risk. So these are children whose mom and or dad has bipolar disorder. As far as we can determine, these kids don't have mental illness yet. But what we did was we conducted MRI scans of these children, and we also conducted cognitive measures. This is the matrix. And what was interesting is that we found in these young kids who were at risk of bipolar disorder, we couldn't really find a whole lot of changes in their brain, anatomy, and or their cognitive functions. But when we looked at the sample of kids who are obese, their brain looked a lot different. Their brain had significant changes in discrete regions of interest, but also they exhibited significant cognitive problems. And we went into this, as you might guess, with a hypothesis that the young child who has bipolar disorder has two phenotypes, bipolar and obesity, that are not occurring by chance. And we wondered whether or not that obesity, because of this occurrence of the effect on brain, is increasing that child's risk of later declaration of bipolarity. We started to look at cognition in my center many years ago for reasons you know. It is an enemy of the state, cognitive problems and mood disorders, and we don't do a good job treating it. In fact, we probably do a great job making it worse with many of our sedating drugs. Obviously, uh, these things can be modified to some extent for patients who've got low thyroids. I talked about earlier how more episodes increase cognitive decline. Uh, The other part to this is the consumption of marijuana No one needs to be told that uh, there's been a massive uptick in marijuana utilization. And in Canada, when recreational marijuana became legal about a year and a half ago, and we've seen a massive uptick, not just in the patients, but in the staff. It's been unbelievable. Anyways, um, but THC and CBD, they're not ready for prime time in this area, that's for sure. And recreational weed seems to be bad news. But let me, in fact, come back to this story. So in keeping with the view, in keeping with the view that the metabolic pathways are relevant to brain health, brain disease, and more particularly brain cognition, we decided to test a hypothesis. So what we did, this is a study from my lab, where we gave these adults with bipolar disorder, we gave them a diabetes drug. These are people who are not diabetic. These are persons with bipolar disorder, and we think bipolar disorder is a consequence, in part, of metabolic perturbation. We gave them a drug that's better known as Victoza, which is a diabetes drug. It's known as liraglutide. And we looked at the effect of this metabolic drug on their cognitive abilities, and we were able to show that it improved it. So just as a comment, uh, that's off label. We're doing this experimentally and, you know, and so on. But it would not be uncommon in my clinic to, to actually give patients liraglutide to improve their cognition and bipolar. That's all off label, very experimental. And we did an MRS study as well. We showed that there was changes in the brain chemistry that were tilted towards a more favorable neurochemical signature. This was interesting to us because we've struggled so much to treat these cognitive problems. We're also looking at anti-inflammatory approaches to try and improve cognition and bipolar because we think if you can better deal with cognition, not only will that have effects on the patient's PROs, patient-reported outcomes and function, but we also think that the disturbance that we see in mixed, that mixed presentation of irritability and all this disorganization, in fact has a grand conductor, and one of the grand conductors in this is in fact cognitive impairment. So we're looking at this from different perspectives. Uh, Another perspective is they use prebiotics, probiotics, antibiotics, are they ready for the prime time? No, not really. Uh, we just published a paper looking at the gut, the biota in the persons with bipolar disorder. They had decreased microbial diversity in their bowel. We, uh, this is part of a, a larger story looking at gut brain axis, which is receiving more attention. But I do not see, uh, uh, really at this point, we can say that we have established that anti-inflammatories, or certainly gut biota manipulation, is ready for clinical recommendation. But we have shown that minocycline, one of the antibiotics, which is also anti-inflammatory, is also quite helpful in some cases mitigating depression. Major depressive disorder with mixed features or subthreshold hypomania is common. Uh, this is one report looking at uh, a study we did. And what the point of this slide is, is that there's two types of depression. Obviously, there's not two types. But for the purpose of this illustration of point, My typology is there's two types, major depression without those five A's I talked about, and major depression with those five A's. And in the latter, that is the depression with mixed features, they tend to be more severe. They tend to be much, much more likely to be talking about suicide, and they just don't respond as well to conventional SSRIs and SNRIs for reasons that we're just not that clear about. So mixed features, which, by the way, affects around one in four adults with major depressive disorder, be vigilant for later declaration of bipolarity in that group. But the majority retain the diagnosis of major depressive disorder. The Florida guidelines for depression are free of charge. They're available online. And they're going to be updated again this year. This was the first guideline I'm aware of in fact that had a consensus agreement that in some people with major depressive disorder, not bipolar, major depressive disorder, who have mixed features, there could be an argument to be made in some cases to consider a second generation antipsychotic as the core treatment and or lithium as the core treatment. And certainly, as they say, more work is needed and the evidence base is thin, But every experienced clinician knows for a fact that when a person with major depression comes in and says, I'm really agitated, I'm really anxious, I'm really irritable, my mind races, I can't slow it down. You do a good history, there's no hypomania or mania that you can ascertain. These people just don't do as well on conventional antidepressants. And I thought that you'd find that interesting. Lorazodone was studied in major depression with mixed. This was adults who do not have bipolar disorder, at least not yet, and I would argue most won't, but they have MDD mixed, and they actually receive loracidone or or placebo, and we saw a significant advantage in, in favor of loracidone, and the dosing's much lower, 20 to 40 milligrams a day. That would be one line of evidence. That's not 100 lines of evidence. That's one line of evidence that would support what we saw in those guidelines. We've looked at mixed from different perspectives. Olanzapine has been shown to be effective in bipolar depression with mixed. I haven't initiated olanzapine in, in many years because of the obesity and the diabetes risk. There are alternatives, but this data is there. Cariprazine we looked at from the point of view of mania and depression with mixed features. So both poles, cariprazine has now been shown to be effective not only for mania and depression, but mania with mixed, and depression with mixed. And this is a relatively newer atypical. We looked at lorazodone in adults with bipolar disorder. Remember I showed you major depression mixed. This is bipolar mixed. Lorazodone had this ability to attenuate the mixed symptoms in the bipolar depressed patient with mixed. So you can hear the theme, the theme that's emanating and surrounding some of these slides, that... It appears that atypicals, not as a class, but some of them that have been looked at in this area, in fact, have the ability to attenuate, uh, attenuate that activation, that over-arousal, and, of course, giving priority to treatments that do not cause significant weight gain. Okay, so we're not going to read this. Uh, conclusion slide, you have it there for us. I think we're going to do the Q&A cards. Okay. Okay.
0: Let me go ahead and take a couple. Sure. All right. So uh, I'll start with some of the child ones while some are being sorted. Um, so one of the uh, first questions was uh, many elementary school children under the age of 10 may present with uh, disruptive mood, severe aggression. Uh, what would be your choice of? medications as well as doses. Um, So I think probably first stepping back uh, and figuring out, particularly in this age range, what exactly is going on diagnostically. Um, And, you know, unfortunately, I think sometimes when we see irritability aggression, we often think bipolar disorder spectrum. However, what we know is that particularly in the under 10s uh, and particularly in the under 5s, Uh, where we have difficulties with verbal expression and abstraction and other neurodevelopmental uh, things that need to be considered with that age range, Uh, they can often be symptoms of depression or anxiety or ADHD. So I would think about the more common things being more common um, with regard to those, uh, not to make this an ADHD depression anxiety lecture, um, but I think dosing of medications is critical uh, in treating these disorders, and we often see patients who are failing to respond because of inadequate dosing. So if you're using mixed amphetamine salt for ADHD, making sure that you're at least at the 0.6 milligrams per kilogram range. If you're using methylphenidate, making sure that you're using at least uh, 0.08, uh, mili- or, I'm sorry, 0.8 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, and then if you're using alpha-2 agonist, making sure that you're using those um, at the right dose. Um, if I did think that this was bipolar disorder based on uh, episodic fluctuation of the symptoms, I would probably still use uh, a second generation antipsychotic, although uh, in this age range, again off label, um, I would probably be using lorazidone or aripiprazole. The question asked about dosing of those uh, for aripiprazole, I would probably start at two milligrams uh, and tend to be a little bit lower in terms of my upper limit. Uh, probably around 10 uh, to 15 milligrams for uh starting at the 20 milligram uh, dose. Uh, and then again, um, remembering on label 10 to 17 for bipolar disorder uh, going up to 80 milligrams. Um, I can take another one mm, unless absolutely, yeah. absolutely. so. Um, a question that really is a great question. It seems odd to use a lanzapine fluoxetine combination to treat bipolar and yet recommend against using antidepressants. Um, they asked me to elaborate a bit on this. I think this is actually a really interesting question. Um, and it raises the possibility potentially that the benefit that we're seeing in the olanzapine fluoxetine combination is it attributable to the olanzapine rather than the fluoxetine. It also raises the possibility that some of the potential hyperarousal or activation associated with the fluoxetine is mitigated by the concurrent treatment with a second-generation antipsychotic, like we see uh, in some of the older uh, literatures with regard to paroxetine and lithium
1: uh, in adult patients with bipolar disorder. Uh, back, okay, a couple it questions here. Um, are lipids and glucose dysregulation and bipolar, is it secondary to the medications that are often prescribed or is it part of the illness? The answer is both. It's a great question. So in people who have not, um, uh, been exposed or medication naïve, they also on average have a higher rate of metabolic abnormalities. And in the first degree unaffected relatives of people who have bipolar disorder, the first degree unaffected relative also exhibits metabolic alteration. So we do think it's part of the illness, but absolutely some medications, not all, are more likely to further disrupt lipid and or glucose homeostasis. A question came in here in terms of, well, many questions. Do I think that the risk of dementia is similar in bipolar 1 and bipolar 2? That's a great question. Um, Don't know the answer to that because that's not been looked at with that level of granularity. Most of the work has looked at bipolar 1. And the reason is, is because it's a bit more homogeneous as a phenotype. But the proxy of episodes is often hospitalization for mania. And that's a, when you're doing studies, that's a much easier proxy. I love the question because it appears that on average, the bipolar one patient may have more cognitive impairment in general than the bipolar two patient. However, the differences between those two groups is less uh, pronounced once you adjust for psychosis. Said differently, the adult with bipolar one who hasn't had psychosis their cognitive deficits are a lot like the person who is bipolar two.
0: So there's a really interesting question, uh, again, uh, prefacing this with off-label, um, discussing the possibility of TMS, um, because the uh, questioner ad- noted that it works uh, well. Um, in terms of the data for that, uh, we certainly have open-label data from Paul Corkin's group and others uh, at Mayo uh, and at UT Southwestern. Um, there is a uh, trial uh, that's been completed in children and adolescents with treatment-resistant depression, um, not specifically looking at folks with bipolar one uh, depression, um, but uh, that is currently with the FDA, and we're uh, really awaiting the results of that trial. So.
1: Okay, uh, is psychosis more common in older onset bipolar? On average, yes. Cariprazine is it a first or second line treatment in bipolar depression? It's going to be a first-line treatment in the Florida Medicaid guidelines for bipolar depression, along with lorazodone. One other quickie here is um, late onset bipolar disorder can predict bad outcomes with regular treatment. Uh, That's a very good point. And I just want, if I understand the question, um, later age onset bipolar disorder, that is the first declaration of bipolar disorder after age 50, for reasons that are not entirely clear, these individuals don't appear to respond as predictably or as robustly with the treatments that we know are FDA approved in the area. And the, the 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 hypothesis is is that there's a different biological type to their illness, and there's an overrepresentation of cerebrovascular disease. And perhaps that's not just making the point that it's different, but maybe that's changing the molecular environment of the brain so that it's not perhaps cooperating as well. But I don't, with treatments, I don't in fact want to give people the impression that people who have a later age at onset bipolar disorder don't respond to treatment. They certainly do. They just appear to have a more complex phenotype.
0: So the next question was related to young patients presenting with aggressive behaviors in whom we highly suspect bipolar disorder. uh, What would be my first line treatment, lithium or an atypical antipsychotic or second generation? Um, In this age range, I probably would still use a second generation antipsychotic. There are a couple reasons for that. One of which, when we look at the Colt data, uh, which again did look at this age range and we would be on label for lithium in this age range, it was often very difficult to get to the target levels. Now in the Colt study, and this pack- this information has now been added to the package insert for lithium, uh, the dose that we really, or rather the blood level that we really pushed to was 1.2 to 1.4 mil, uh, milliequivalents per liter, um, so considerably higher uh, than Dr. McIntyre uh, alluded to in the older population. One of the other issues is that the uh, uh, Creating clearance in this population is so fast that it's often very difficult to get to a therapeutic lithium level uh, in the under 10 population. Um, and it also makes it more difficult to interpret uh, the lithium level um, without doing some of more of the PK modeling that we do in our research group. Um, so that's really the main reason why I would probably use uh, as a second generation antipsychotic in that population.
1: Would I recommend a small dose of lithium for a unipolar patient who has dementia? Um, The short answer would be no. I'd have a hard case to defend that in terms of, let's say, I was before my examiners on my certification exam, because they would say, what's the evidence to support that? And I'd have to say, none. But what I would also say is, collegially, just talking conversationally, the question's an excellent one in terms of, Uh, you know, is this possible? I made reference to a study that was done, it was done in Brazil actually, in people who have MCI, mild cognitive impairment, and they were given lithium for a period of up to six months, or placebo, and it appeared that the lithium had some favorable influences on their biomarkers of phosphorylated tau and amyloid, so that gives reason to believe that maybe in fact lithium could be considered, but I don't think at this point we could say it's a prime time treatment. Does lithium cause cardiac remodeling? Not that I know about, that's a very interesting question, but lithium does appear to reduce cardiovascular mortality in bipolar. And then this one question, so another quickie here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, is it possible that the dementia in bipolar disorder is a consequence of the medication? So kudos to lithium, but do other treatments, in fact, increase the risk of dementia? It's a great question. You probably have heard that there's been observational studies associating benzodiazepine exposure to elevated dementia risk. More recently, there was a report that came out, got a lot of press actually, that anticholinergic drugs, or drugs that have anticholinergic properties, some of our antidepressants, for example, are increasing the risk of dementia later on. Again, these are observational studies. Uh, The conclusion, you can anticipate what it is, it's an association, we don't have causation, more work is needed. Uh, So I guess we're sort of left with kind of not knowing. But it's it's a nice point to raise. Certainly for me, and this is kind of a circuitous set of associations, but I've tried to avoid obesity-prone drugs when I can for reasons that are abundantly obvious, but also because the obesity, we believe what we know is anti-cognitive. So it seems to me counterintuitive to be trying to preserve somebody's cognitive abilities and then giving them treatments that cause a lot of weight gain. They just didn't make any sense to me.
0: So So there's a question related to uh, gynecomastia, an eight-year-old boy um, associated with medication. And again, I think this really drives home the issue of trying to avoid many of these medications that are associated with hyperprolactinemia, um, which probably relates uh, in part to my answer on the earlier question with regard to the younger child uh, using medication that actually is a partial agonist. and again, uh, just emphasizing as I've now said a couple times uh, that some of the medications that aren't associated with hyperprolactinemia signal in adults seem to be associated with that signal in kids. Um, there's another question related to a patient with severe depression. Uh, the questioner specifies but no mania. Uh, would you recommend lithium uh, or what would be your approach? Um, I think lithium is certainly something that could be considered, um, although the evidence uh, in this population is pretty limited, um, essentially consisting of open-label uh, or retrospective data. I think my approach here would be the standard in terms of first-line antidepressants, but, again, emphasizing uh, dose as well as exposure, the two not necessarily being directly related. Um, I would also consider adjunctive aripiprazole, uh, lorazodone, Um, And then from a risk-benefit standpoint, would use omega-3 fatty acids. Um, The dose there really being important, being at least 1.8 grams per day of the EPA plus DHA. Also considering that you're optimally managing the comorbidity in terms of anxiety. And then specifically looking at sleep. I think Tordia, the treatment of SSRI-resistant depression in adolescent study, taught us a lot about what not to use to manage pediatric sleep. Um, particularly in patients treated with fluoxetine, venlafaxine, and paroxetine.
1: Questions here are a lot around neurocognition, and um, this question was: uh, Does lifetime treatment mitigate the risk of neurocognitive deficits? Great question. Multi-episode bipolarity is associated with a higher risk of dementia. The use of lithium reduces episode frequency, and that seems to reduce the risk of dementia back down to the general population level. Similar question, but different. A patient, in fact, has depression, is prescribed antidepressant, begins to show some hypomanic symptoms, is this person at higher risk of dementia? I don't know the answer to that, but hypomanic symptoms induced by the antidepressant is, in fact, probably the best pharmacologic dissection of bipolar you're ever gonna get, that probably is a subsyndromal person with bipolar disorder, or a person with subsyndromal bipolar disorder, and we know multi-episodes linked to dementia. Final question on this this patch, is um, have you ever used uh, lorazodone for bipolar 2? Great question. I have, and I use it plenty in bipolar 2. You know that bipolar depression is predominantly a depressive illness, and when you put bipolar 1 and bipolar 2, you juxtapose them together. Bipolar 2 is considerably more depressive. So I do use the Razinone in bipolar two. I should mention the studies were done in bipolar one.
0: Yeah. I think we're probably almost out of time for questions. Yeah. Uh, I think it's yeah. right now nine. Good. Oh Are we nine o'clock. Looks like we have 28 seconds. Okay. Squeeze blowing. Uh, <laughs> let's see, go ahead. I don't oh have my, a fast have. one. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, This is a great question related to placebo response. Uh, And the question is essentially, given that many of our treatments are short-term, or rather these trials are short-term, can we really infer that the treatment uh, effect that we're seeing is due to the medication and not placebo? Um, I think that we can. um, And that really becomes a question of causal inference, which I would absolutely love to have with the uh, person that asked that after um, after this presentation.
1: Folks, thank you very much for participating. Enjoy the rest of your time here. In San Diego.